grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear saints, dear holy ones, dear Christians who have been made white in the blood of the Lamb, today we observe all saints. We remember those saints who have gone before us, those who have finished their labors on earth and have joined the company of heaven. And we also remember and recognize that there are saints living among us. In fact, God declares you to be a saint. For you, in Christ, are holy and righteous. That is what a saint is, a holy one. Therefore, Paul writes to the saints at the various churches, such as the saints in Ephesus, the saints at Philippi, the saints in Thessalonica, the saints in Corinth, the saints in Rome, the saints in Galatia. Paul names them Christians living here on earth as saints. But when people hear these glorious names ascribed to them, they may respond by saying, well, I'm not a saint. I'm not as good as St. Paul was. I'm not as great as the prophets of the Old Testament were. Or I'm not even as good as my neighbor who tithes, who is in church Sunday after Sunday, who ensures that everything is neat and orderly in the house of God. We may look back at our past and we may think, how can God love someone like me for the things that I have done? I cannot be a saint, we may reason. Satan is always on the attack. He tries to lie to us day and night, trying to get us to doubt the grace of God that we have in Christ Jesus and the promises that our Lord bestows upon us. Sadly, many have stated or believe in the holiness of doubt. They try to get you to make you think that your doubt is good, that it is somehow God-pleasing. They attempt to turn the sin of doubt into even a good work. But recognize where doubt comes from. It's not rooted in Christ and his word or his promises, but it comes from Satan. And when you doubt the truths of God, it is because Satan wants you to reject God in his truths. Satan wants you to follow him so that you don't join the saints in heaven, but that you end up with Satan in hell. And so Satan tells you in your doubt, ask God for signs. Tell God to give you something tangible that proves his existence and that he really does love you despite your past sins. And then listening to those lying whispers in our ears, we pray for those signs. We seek after earthly signs and wonders and miracles. We, turn a cl we, we close our ears to the words and promises of God from the realities that God has established and the mysteries that Christ himself has instituted in the sacraments. And then we turn to figments of our own imaginations to superstitious activity and anything but the word of God. In the Gospels, we can see Jesus performing many miracles. 
And he performed these many miracles, not only because he loved the people whom he performed the miracles on, but also to prove that he is the anointed one, the coming one, the promised Messiah, to prove our Lord's divinity and verify that his preaching is indeed true. And yet, while he was performing these miracles, people would still come up to him and say, Lord, give us a sign. As if the miracles in his preaching were insufficient. They wanted a sign to show that he is God, signs from heaven. What did Jesus say on an occasion when they came up to him and said, show us a sign? Did he just perform the first miracle he could, he could perform and think of? No, he did not. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus proclaimed, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus was saying, look to the Bible. Look to an event that happened about 700 years earlier. And that is your sign, the truth of God's word. Now, you may feel that asking God for some sign is natural, a human request, but Jesus here in Matthew 16 calls it evil. When people tell God, just give me a sign to show me that you love me or that you have bestowed your grace upon me or that you have saved me or that I'm now going to be counted as one who is acceptable to heaven, what they're doing is they're suggesting that the signs that are found in the word of God and the signs that we have in the sacrament through baptism and through the Lord's Supper and through the absolution, these signs which God himself has instituted to create and sustain our faith, what we're saying is that these are not good enough. The sign of Jonah is enough. Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish. He was spit up on dry ground three days later, prefiguring our Lord's own rest in the grave, in which he is crucified on Friday. And on the third day, he rises from the dead on Easter Sunday. He is triumphant and victorious over death in the grave and even the lies of Satan. Despite this, we may still find ourselves seeking after signs. Perhaps one who may have longed for a sign, we do not know, John does not tell us, is that very man, the Apostle John. The apostle who got to be with our Lord during his three years of public ministry. The apostle who was there when Jesus was crucified. The apostle who witnessed the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We now fast forward 65 years from when all of those events happened. And St. John records this revelation of Jesus Christ. 65 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, this book is written. About 25 years earlier, Jerusalem and her temple are destroyed by the Romans. By this point in John's life, he's an older man by this point, and it's believed that all of the other apostles had been martyred, put to death for their bold confession of the Christian faith. The only apostle living is John. One might say, well, that's a great blessing to live a long, comfortable life as an apostle. But that was not the case for his life. It was not easy. Not only was John up there in age and having witnessed or heard of the martyrdom of many of the saints, 
and the apostles whom he once spent time with. But when he receives this revelation of Jesus Christ, John is exiled to the island of Patmos, which is a place for criminals. He probably within the last five years had written the Gospel of John and the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And while he's suffering persecution, rejection, and hatred, Jesus delivers to him this grand and glorious sign, this revelation of Jesus Christ. John sees heaven, and he records it all in this book of Revelation. John sees mysterious things, and he sees many things with mysterious meanings. The, the visions which John sees and rec are recorded in this book of Revelation are significant. In his visions, he sees the church in a way that the church has never been seen on earth. For what John sees is the church triumphant. The people who are clothed in white robes from all the nations of the earth. People who have gone through the great tribulation, who have passed from death to life. Who are worshiping the Lord God continually. He sees the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in their midst, who is shepherding them. And he sees that of these saints who have gone before him, their tears are wiped away forever. No cross or sadness there can hinder their untroubled gladness. John's accounts are truly, truly glorious depictions of the church. But here on earth, we do not yet belong to that church triumphant. We describe the church here on earth, the church of which we are a part, as the church militant. The church triumphant and the church militant are not two ch separate churches, but they are two sides of the same church. The church here on earth and the church in heaven. That one ch church worships the same Christ. And that one church is washed in the blood of the Lamb. That one church sings together, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. And that one church sings together, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And when we come to the divine service, the whole company of heaven participates with us. As we confess in the liturgy, therefore with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Thus, when we come to the divine service, we put aside our personal preferences. We stop focusing on ourself and we come together in worship. We even employ music that is suitable for heaven. Our worship service is not a plaything, not a game, not even a time for emotional highs. It's not an opportunity for the church to mimic the culture of our day or her trends. Instead, it is here where Christ is supernaturally present, giving us and bestowing on us his love and his gifts, his signs and his wonders. 
It is here that the church sings, employing ancient words and styles that transcend time and culture. It is here that the church militant gathers despite the opposition of the devil and the world and even our own sinful flesh. It is here that where the church triumphant or the church militant is gathered around the word of Christ, the sacraments which Jesus has instituted so that God's people are forgiven, so that they are united to their savior Jesus, and so that they lay hold of eternal salvation. The world despises the church, even our own flesh does, and yet the church here fights onward. The fight is fierce, the warfare long. We feebly struggle. Our time of tribulation is not over. The battle must continue. All who desire to be godly in Christ will suffer persecution. And our fight for God's word of promise will never end. The world as we fight will scoff and jeer. The church in this world will always appear weak incompetent, confused, divided, irrelevant, mismanaged, and hopelessly out of touch. But you know what? God is okay with that. For the church's glory is hidden behind the cross of Christ. Jesus suffered shame and scorn, hatred and persecution, rejection and torture, temptation and ultimately crucifixion so that we can have that glorious gift of eternal life. He came into this world for a purpose, a sole purpose, to reconcile the world to our Father in heaven by dying in the place of sinners, taking away their sin and making it possible so that we sinners can be declared saints, being covered with the very righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's arrival, his birth of the, from the Virgin Mary, along with his crucifixion, was not some sort of accident in human history. His death was planned by God so that we can be redeemed, and so that our separation from God would be no more, and so that we will not face what we deserve, temporal punishment and eternal death, but instead we receive God's grace and every blessing, namely the forgiveness of sins and being declared saints. This is all because Jesus died in our place, bearing our sin and our iniquity, taking away our guilt, and suffering the punishment for our sins that were due for us. And he has replaced our sin with his righteousness so that we are now clothed white in his blood. We are not clothed white on our own accord. We're not made white based on what others have done, either currently or in the past. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. When we were not seeking him, he came to us in word and sacrament, adding us to his church and declaring us to be saints. And he has numbered you, O Christian, to his church. 
He wants a sign. He wants something to prove and demonstrate this great love that God could even have for you. The sign is given to you in your baptism. Through your baptism, Jesus has come to you. He has taken away your sin. He has clothed you with his very righteousness. You are delivered by your baptism from death and the devil, and you have been granted the gift of eternal salvation. Surely your baptism is a most perfect and infallible sign from God. For through baptism, you are even white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you want further signs that you are numbered among the saints? God has taught you his word, and he has gathered you here in his house with fellow saints who are also redeemed by Jesus. Your sign is also the New Testament in Christ's blood, in which Jesus offers you his very body and his very blood for you to eat and drink for the forgiveness of your sins. Your sign re- continues to be that word of God's promise, God's declaration to you that even though you are a sinner, by God's grace you are a saint. You are a child of God. You are washed, you are holy, you are set apart, you are justified, you are sanctified, you are forgiven, you are innocent, and you are righteous. God's word says so. That is your sign. Do you think that you're not good enough to receive this glorious gospel and to have these things pronounced upon you? The fact is, none of us are good enough. No one deserves it. But God grants it to you anyway out of his great love for you. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit loves you, and God loves you with the same unconditional love that he loves all the saints of God. You are a saint of God in Christ Jesus. You are no different than those who are in heaven except you are still here and your fight must continue. There is more work for you to do here in the church militant, but soon you too, at the time appointed by God, You will rest from your labors, and you will be part of the church triumphant who has come out of the great tribulation and whose robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. You will neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. Soon you will be led to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And so we proclaim with all the saints of God, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Thanks be to God for this victory, which he grants to us. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. We continue by singing the hymn as printed in your bulletin. Mm -hmm.